0: Thanks, Debbie. Well, good evening, everyone. My name is Wendy, and I'm an alcoholic. I first off would like to say thank you to the committee for inviting me. And when Debbie had mentioned she phoned my room and, and a man answered the phone, you know, I've been most impressed with this roundup so far. A man meets us at the airport. I just get settled in my room and a man knocks on the door, he introduces himself, and another man comes and stands beside him and introduces himself. I mean, I like this roundup. (laughs) And if you'll notice, somebody pointed out to me that my name badge says, with the purple one the way I've got my name, over top it says, Peeker, instead of Speaker. So going along with the theme of these men, if all the young, good-looking ones would sit in front and the pizza will have a good time. (laughs) Anyway, I'll start with my story, and it's not probably a whole lot of different than a lot of, of you alcoholics sitting out there tonight. I grew up on a farm in small town, Saskatchewan with three sisters and two brothers. And I had a very, very good life on that farm, except there was one element there that I didn't know about until years later, and that element was alcoholism. See I loved the effect that drinking had even before I took my first drink. My father was a very strict disciplinarian type of person, and he wouldn't say, What he thought of us children as far as expressing his love. But when he drank, he did. I mean, I was just the best little girl he had and he'd tell me that he loved me. And I thought, I didn't know it then, but I thought whatever he's doing, I want what he has. And I was willing to go to any length to get it. And I so wanted to to have his approval. I so wanted to get him to say, you know, gee, I'm proud of you and what you're doing. And I would try anything to seek that approval. I mean, I I would not help my mother in the house. Housework was like, no, that was too feminine. I would go out, I would help dad do chores, I would work in the field. I mean, I would do absolutely anything for this man to try and get his approval, to get him to like me. The only thing I knew I couldn't do was write my name in the snow. (laughs) So when I couldn't get his approval, when I got introduced to to alcohol, it was my, my first husband when we were first dating. And I won't ever forget that first taste, that beer going down. If I sit long enough and hard enough, I can remember what that feeling was like, and especially when it hit the bottom of my stomach, and it was like that warm glow just took over, and boy, I could do anything. I absolutely anything. Then they introduced me to the wines, and I mean, back then when I was drinking, that's all we had, the, or they had the money for, was, was beer and wine, and I couldn't never figure out how my father knew I'd been drinking the night before, never mind the fact I had thrown up in bed, or I'd be in the bathroom throwing up, and on a number of occasions he would say to me, if the boys don't keep the booze away from you, I'm going to keep you away from the boys, and so he would attempt to ground me. But one of the other punishments he used to do, and I, I swear that he knew exactly how bad of a hangover I had, was like in the spring and the fall and the tractor, the, the tractor work we had to do, like on the fields. He would put me in the cab of that tractor and say, there's your job for the day, do the summer fall. And that old cab in your head would be going like this, you know, like he just knew what that did to me. It didn't stop me though. I mean, anything, I couldn't get his approval, so I mean, I turned into that rebellious person and I just, I did what I wanted. I suffered some consequences because of it, but I mean, through alcoholic fashion, I was willing to go to any length to get what I needed. And it turned out, when I was 17, I was dating my first husband all along, and I turned out, it turned out that I got pregnant. And, of course, one of the things that I thought, well, you know, here we go, the white picket fence, we're going to live happily ever after. And First of all, I had to convince my father that this is what I really should do, or needed to do, and, and wanted to do. And I really lived under the assumption that for sure, when I married this man, you know, we were going to have this wonderful life. Forgetting that this problem of alcoholism came with me, and was also a part of his life. I mean, I couldn't understand why, no I, should, I shouldn't say that, I can understand now why, but at the time, in our marriage, when we were first early in our marriage, I understood that word resentment very well. I didn't hear that word till I joined Alcoholics Anonymous, but I knew what resentment was. I resented the fact that I had to stay home with this baby and he was out in the bars and he was out with his friends. And so I thought that, you know, my only goal in life is I couldn't wait for this baby to grow up so I could just go to the bar when I wanted. That's not much of a goal to have for yourself, looking back on it now. But I so resented him not being at home. And it turned out That as a result of his drinking, and the progression that he took, I should back it up there again, because we had a daughter as well. Our son was born, and then three years later our daughter was born. And it was one of those things I thought it was going to fix the whole relationship. You know, that if we had another child, he would stay home more. But it didn't. All it did was it allowed us to, or allowed him to do what he wanted to do, and me to sit home and be resentful. Now don't get me wrong, any opportunity that I had to drink, I took it. And I can remember, and if you ask my children today, they will tell you, because they used to tell their grandparents the fights that their father and I used to have when we were drinking. Because see, for me, when I was drinking, all that stuff would come out. All those resentments, that anger, that frustration would frustration would come out, and I would take it out on him. And there would be nights where we would drive home from the bar, one in particular, and he kicked me out of the car. Our fight was so bad, he kicked me out of the car. So I said, okay, I'm walking down the highway, then he tried to run me over, you know. And then we get home, and then the fight continues on, and there was holes punched in the walls at home, and One time we fought over a loaded shotgun and because he was going to commit suicide and I was going to be the hero rush in there and tell him not to do this. And I mean, all of that stuff. And my kids, for the most part, were there through all of this stuff. And I thought because, you know, they're downstairs sleeping in their beds, they're not going to hear any of this stuff. But they would report to their grandparents exactly what went on the night before. And so, through that whole progression, I found myself trying to get him to sober up. And I thought, if he would just sober up, our life would be wonderful. So a girl I went to school with, I heard that she had gone to this treatment center and, and that her husband sobered up. And I thought, well, now there's a unique idea. All I have to do is go to this treatment center and he sobers up. Wonderful. So I get down there, and the first thing they have you do at this treatment center is fill out the 20 questions. And I remember a speaker at the PA Roundup said one time he fell into a drunk trap. And I really believe for me that I, that, that happened too. It's just like the story about the, the old people in the senior citizens' home and this old gal one day, I aspire to be like her someday, she says to this guy, she said, I, this older fellow, I can tell how old you are just by looking at you. And he says, no, you can't. She said, yes, I can. He said, well, prove it. She said, well, stand up. So he stands up. She said, drop your pants. So he drops his pants. She said, them shorts, too. Drop them. So he does. And she looks them all over up and down. She said, you're two. He said, you can tell that just by looking at me? Nope, he told me yesterday. (laughs) That's what those 20 questions did to me. When the counselor pulled them out and, and we went through them, he said, let's go through these one by one. And so when we got down to the bottom, he said, what do you think? I had answered 12. And I remember when I filled this out, I would answered 12 yeses, I got to the bottom where it says if you've answered yes to three or more, you're considered an alcoholic, and I thought, maybe I should just scribble some of these out. But then I thought, no, they give you a pen, so that would be kind of, mm, you know, for sure they'd know, and I was trying, you know, to, to change these answers. So when he said, what do you think about this? The first thought I had was, not so nice words for him, but I didn't say that, but the old alcoholic survival thinking kicked in, and I thought, okay, I'll go along with this. I'm going to learn all there is about alcoholism and what an alcoholic is, and then I'm going to take all this information home, and I'm going to show my husband how to sober up, or tell him at the very least. But somebody in that center said, if you're not here for you, it's not going to work. I can be an exception to that rule. So when I came home from that center, I did go to A meetings. I attended, oh, I'd say for about six months. I did get a sponsor. I didn't go through the steps. And I didn't think it was for me. I hadn't accepted the fact that I was an alcoholic. So consequently, I went back out drinking. But it happened very subtly. I remember my husband sitting down one night having a drink and he pulled out the liqueur bottle and that was one of my favorites. So I thought, the justification, alcoholics don't drink liqueur. They drink wine out of paper bags, you know, and bottles and paper bags, and they drink, you know, all other kinds of stuff. So I had justified the fact that, you know, because they don't drink that stuff, I can't be an alcoholic. But it just led me back to drinking again, one more time. Through the course of all of that, I was going, I was attending Al-Anon meetings because I was trying to figure out how to live with this worse alcoholic than me, and, um, It turned out that I got to the point, I made the decision that I was going to leave my first husband and take my children and and, uh, move into off the farm into town. And it was a decision that came about as a result of prayer and meditation and saying to God, you know, what do I do, what do I do? For three years I prayed that, what do I do, what do I do? And the people in Al-Anon just kept telling me, you know, when the time is right, you will know it. That when the time is right you will know it and uh, it worked out that way I knew intuitively the morning that I got up and the day that I decided to leave that was the day that I needed to do that so the kids and I moved in into Malford and I thought there life is wonderful you know I have got rid of this problem you know I don't have to worry about that anymore but one more time I took the problem of alcoholism with me. And you know, there was two guys back then, when I first came into Alcoholics Anonymous, who wouldn't give up on me. They just did not give up. They kept coming to my place of work, even when I didn't want them to. You know those weekends when you plan, those drunk weekends, you know, you're going to go away and get drunk, and these guys would show up and I would get so angry, like, why are they here today? Why didn't they come Monday? Anyway, when I moved into town and I was on my own, there was, I had gone to a few meetings again, and there was going to be a wedding dance for one of the girls that I worked with. And these two guys showed up again on the Friday and said, Are you going to be okay to go to this dance? Oh, yeah, no problem. Are you sure you're going to stay sober? Oh, yeah. No problem. No big deal. You know, it's like you guys don't don't make a big deal out of it. Anyway, the girl, another girl that I used to work with, I loved drinking with because she drank just like I did. You know, she wasn't one of these teetotalers or these women that would say, "Oh, I'm starting to feel it. I better (laughs) quit." You know, like I I don't understand those social drinkers. They drive you crazy. One of my first Al-Anon sponsors, we went to the bar one night, and they knew I'd gone to a QA meeting, so I couldn't drink with them. But she's sitting there, and she orders this beer, and it takes her two hours to drink it. I'm sitting there, and I'm sure the drool is running down, and I'm watching her drink this beer, and I want to say, give it here, and I'll show you how to do it, you know? but I didn't. Anyway, I go, I I tell these guys, I'm going to be okay, don't worry about it, you know, no big deal. So this girl that really likes to drink like I do, her and her husband are spending the weekend at my apartment. And, of course, they get there on Saturday afternoon, and what's the first thing she pulls out? There's a 40. She says, going to have a drink. And I said, oh no, no, no. I didn't want to tell her I joined Alcoholics Anonymous, because when you tell them your drinking buddies that, they scatter like rats. <laughs> anyway, so I said, no, you know, I've been through so much, you know, I'm pretty emotional, and if I start drinking, I'm just gonna get carried away. And she said, that famous line, what's one or two gonna hurt? You know, that's all the encouragement I really needed. So away I went. We tied into that forty, and by the time we got to the wedding dance, yeah, I was a little—I was feeling not so bad. And I won't ever forget. Across the hall, there was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous sitting there. I recognized him, and I thought, "Oh no, it's like the AA police that caught me, you know." And I thought, "Well, he's seen me now." I might as well get good and good. And I did. I found out later when I went back to meetings and I talked to him, he didn't even remember me being there. Like I'm that important, right? Anyway, the next morning when I got up, I couldn't look in a mirror. I didn't want to see myself. I couldn't face myself. And these two guys that came to see me Friday... Before that wedding dance, the one guy showed up at my place of work Monday morning, and he said, so, did you get drunk? I said, yep. He said, no, you didn't. I said, yes, I did. He said, no, you didn't. I said, yes, I did. And he said, I just lost five bucks. He bet that I wouldn't. The other guy bet that I would The guy that bet that I would drink saw something in me. He knew I was, like it says in the big book, like the boy whistling in the dark. You know, I was going to be able to handle this with no problem, and he knew I couldn't handle it at all. So he said, the one guy that came to see me, says, well, I'll pick you up tonight. We'll go to a meeting. So he picked me up, and that so happened that night. It was step one. But you know what? I still wasn't ready. I was still going to Al-Anon, and the, um, about two months after that meeting that I went back to on step one, a friend of mine, another friend in Al-Anon, her and I went up to visit this gal that was in the hospital, who was also in Al-Anon, and it was on a Tuesday night meeting night, and her and I both planned, you know, that we were going to go to the Al-Anon meetings together. And all the way up there, like I had such a sore back, I couldn't hardly sit or stand or and we get into this hospital room visiting with this gal, and she looks at me and she said, "Boy, it looks like you and I should trade places here. You look far worse than i than I feel. But I don't know, I just got a terribly sore back. So this gal and her and I this other gal that was going to the meeting with me when we left, she was driving down the street, and I just had one of those moments of clarity. I said, drop me off at the meeting. She said, sure. I walked in that night, and something had changed. The people that were there weren't different. The things that they said probably weren't a whole lot different. But I was hearing with different ears. I'd stopped comparing myself. I'd stop saying to myself, I can't be that bad of an alcoholic or I'm not an alcoholic because I didn't lose my license, I didn't lose my family, I didn't lose my job, any of that stuff. I stopped comparing. And the people there were so, I mean, they were so welcoming. Like they they didn't say, oh my God, you shouldn't have gone out drinking or shame on you, blah, blah, blah. They didn't do any of that stuff. They just said, welcome back. And especially those two guys that didn't give up on me, they were really, really happy to see me. But you know, there's still that thing, like when you, for me anyway, it's like I had that moment of clarity and still sometimes I just, I think, you know, well, maybe I wasn't that bad. But there was one gal in that group back then, and I believe God puts people in our path when we really need it to give us the messages we need to hear. She was sharing one night, this was after the meeting about you know, having to call it coffee. I mean, they took me coffee, they took me places, wherever. And she was sharing about how she at one time lived in this cardboard box under this viaduct in Vancouver, you know, and how she lived on the streets and what had happened to her. And I said, I said to her, I said, my God, I said, I I was never that bad. I said, maybe I'm not the holly. And she said one little word. She said, yet. She said, Wendy, if you don't think you can get that bad, she said, the door's open. You can leave. You can go out there. You can find out how far down that you can go just by picking up that first drink. And I thought, no, that scared me (laughs) enough to stay in Alcoholics Anonymous. I thought, I don't want to find out. I really don't. So then we had a step series, and it was suggested at that time that I get in and learn all I needed to learn and do what I needed to do as far as the steps. And so with step one, that was the one thing that really helped me to keep my foot in the door of Alcoholics Anonymous, was that word yet. But also looking back over the course of my drinking and and the trouble that it did cause me and bring me. I didn't want to be a mother, I didn't want to be a responsible worker, I didn't want to be in that relationship that I was in with my husband, I didn't want any of those responsibilities. And I had to look at all that stuff when I was, when I looked at step one. How my life was unmanageable and that I had no control over alcohol. And step two, when we read out of the 12 and 12 about the intellect, you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg, I was that person. I wanted actual visual proof that this power greater than me existed show me. You know, don't tell me, don't ask me to believe, just show me. And the person who led our steps said, It's in the people sitting around you, if you want to know that God's working. And he asked, How long you've been sober? And I forget at that time how long I'd been. And had you ever successfully done that on your own before? Well, I mean remember those times where you'd say yeah I quit and I quit for six weeks or something and then go to a party and wish I'd never told anybody I said I was going to quit I mean that's one of the absolute worst things a drunk can do because everybody would say I thought you quit you know one of those anyway at that time too they suggested we get a sponsor and when I sobered up in Melbourne there wasn't too many women there So I had this, I had a man for a sponsor. And this guy was so, so helpful and so supportive. He said to me, he said, anytime, day or night, you call me. Whenever you have something you need to talk about, call me. And I would do that. The worst thing for me in that first year of sobriety was that middle of the night fears. That blackness, that darkness. I would get so scared, and I would just, I couldn't sleep, I couldn't think, I would just be scared. So I'd phone him, sometimes two in the morning, sometimes three in the morning, and he took my calls, and he would just listen, and he would let me ramble on and on, he'd say a couple of things, then he'd say, now get down on your knees, say a prayer, and go to bed and sleep. And I would. You know, and I can be so thankful that he was there for me, because I don't know what I would have done had that support not been there. Him and, and all the other members that were back, back there in those first meetings when I sobered up, they were so, so helpful and supportive. Step three for me, when I take a look at all those things I, I used to say, I remember saying in the Step Series, like, what's my will? What's God's will? And how do you know? And they pointed out to me all those selfish thoughts and ideas and actions that I had. And it was that, what are you going to do for me today kind of thing, kind of attitude. I had to take a look at all of that and turn that over. Turning my life over, I didn't have a problem with. It was like I could do that in the fact that, okay, for as long as I'm meant to be here on earth, God, I know that you're you know, it's your design, your plan. But it was that that will. So they said, you know, that step three prayer. Say that prayer and hear yourself and and think about what you're saying. And you know, I've also used that prayer because I've heard I've listened to some other tapes. I've learned that, I've said that prayer when it comes to other difficulties in my life, like my children back then. I was a single parent, had these two teenagers, and I didn't know what to do with them. You know, my father said to me one time, before I got married and had my, had my son, he said, he gave me the parent's curse. He said, I hope when you two marry, He said, you have a daughter just like her, then you're going to know the hell that we've been through. Well, his curse came true because my daughter, boy, I'll tell you, she loved to test my tolerance and patience. And at 13 years of age, I would have gladly given her away to somebody. So when all of those things were going on, that step three prayer, I would say, God, I offer my children to thee. Build with them, do with them as you would. You know, take away their troubles, at victory over them, maybe they're a witness to those that they would help of your power and your love. And I would say that over and over and over, because that's the only thing I could do. I had no control. And step four for me, um, I remember that step series, when we were going through it, I you know, it was suggested that we get this step 4 done and make our appointment for step 5, and I, hey, do we really want to do this? Well, my sponsor took care of that. He made the step 5 appointment for me, so I had no choice but to finish my step 4. But one of the things that had helped me do, and I remember when we were going through the 12 and 12, those questions in there, where did I arouse jealousy, bitterness, anger, resentment? And I won't ever forget that. It's like I'm standing here today. And we were sitting outside around this guy's backyard in this park bench, and it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Me. I'm taking a look at me. My God. some I have, you know, done some of these things. And those were the things they said to get all that stuff down on paper. And before I started, it was also suggested that we get down and say a prayer and ask for God's guidance. And that's what I did. I needed that because I was really entirely ready to, you know, let's look at all of this stuff because I was tired of carrying it around. And my step five, the turning point in my sobriety was doing it with this lady minister. You know, when I was drinking, I didn't like women because I didn't feel as though I was good as or there was competition or whatever, you know. So I had a real problem making friends with women for the most part. And so when her and I sat down, I mean, I had brought this list in. I thought she's going to read it and go through it. She set it aside. She said, let's talk. And she got stuff out of me I thought was going to go to my grave. I really, really believed I wouldn't ever tell another living human being some of that stuff. And when we were done, and she shared some of her experiences too, which really helped me to understand the fact that I really am not alone. You know, like other women think like that or have experienced that sort of feeling or whatever. So she really, really, really helped me. And at the end, she said to me, Wendy, I want you to go home and I want you to do two things. She said, I want you to go home and add to this list, because we put down some of my assets. She said, I want you to go home and add to that list on a daily basis, but look at it on a daily basis. Because she recognized in me how little I thought of myself. I just thought I was lower than A snake's belly. When I first came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I had no sense of self at all. And she said, "Then I want you to pray on a daily basis for the for the ability to forgive yourself." Because she said, "I've got to ask you when you were going through all that stuff in your drinking days. Did you have these tools that you have now in Alcoholics Anonymous?" And I said, "Well, no." She said, "You got them now. Use them and accept the fact." and forgive yourself for what you have done." And I did that, and I remember going home that day, and I didn't walk out of there on a pink cloud or a high or anything, you know, that I hear sometimes at meetings that people oh wow, this felt wonderful. I was drained, I was literally drained, but inside I intuitively knew I had built some sort of foundation, and that foundation was that freedom that it talks about in the big book that archway to freedom and I looked at it the freedom to be me you know I no longer had to you know to change to suit the occasion or the person I was with or you know freedom just to be me and it says in step six you know this is a step that separates the men from the boys and I believe that for me you know to me it's the it's a more, it's not I shouldn't say the most important step, but it's a very important step. And when you look at it in the big book, there's not a whole lot that it says on there on in on step six, but I'll tell you that's the, the change step. and I experienced that I'm like when we're going through our step series, and afterwards, like I' mentioned about my children, the troubles that I had with them, they decided during that first year of my sobriety to move back with their father. He had somehow, you know, talked them into moving back with them and he was still drinking, so they weren't with me. And I struggled with that. And I fought that. And I thought, i got to try and do something to change the situation, get them back. My sponsor said, pray about it. Give it to God. Pray about it. And I thought, what good is that going to do? Is that going to bring my children home? This whole problem, as it says in Step 6, in the 12 and 12, was causing me excessive misery. And I would just hash it over and over and over. Finally, I did what was suggested. Middle of the night again, I get down on my knees, and I, and I was just so angry and resentful, and I'd say, okay, God, I know I'm supposed to do this and I don't know if it's going to change anything but I give this whole situation to you. I'm tired of it. What do you want me to do? And I remember getting into bed that night and sleeping like like a baby. The next morning I got up, situation had not changed, but my attitude toward it had it made a big difference. And when step 7 There probably is as many definitions of humility as there are members of Alcoholics Anonymous. But to me, humility means being teachable. To this day, I still get down on my knees and I say my prayers because when I'm down on my knees, that's when I'm most humble. It's when I get up off my knees and head out the door that things can change for me and think that I've got full control of the world. But humbly asking God to look to to remove these shortcomings. And every day is an opportunity for me to live the way that God would have me live. And step seven, help me establish that basis too. Step eight, I had to write a list. You know, I would sit there and I would think, Well maybe I owe that person and a man and me, and I know I think they owe it more to me and but my sponsor said, get out that pen and paper, make that list. So I did. And I had to pray about some of those names and I had to pray for the willingness because as I said, I wanted the amend, I didn't think I owed it. And when I came to step nine, oh, and, and, and my sponsor also helped me with that, how much harm is harm? You know, when I started writing this list, I mean, I could think way back to high school days and all the rest of it. And it was suggested to me, the guideline being, if you think about a situation and it gives you that football in the stomach, get that name down on the list. If it's a person you want to try and avoid or a situation, you put that down on the list. And so that's what I did. And when it came to step nine, I had no problems with the obvious ones. I mean, my children, my parents, my sisters, my brothers. Um, I can remember my children's reaction was, you know, like, (laughs) sitting them down and apologizing for my attitudes and some of my behaviors, and you know, that I was going to be, you know, what I was doing in AA. And, you know, those little dogs that are in the back of a car when when you hit their head and they go like this. You know, my kids are going... I oh yeah, mother's on another trip now, you know, like right So what that said to me was I had to show them, not just tell them, but show them that I could change and that things would be better. And another powerful example of that for me was I had owed what I thought was a huge amen to this person when I was first sobering up. And I knew, like I had no contact with her, but I had, our group had received a poster about this roundup, and guess who was speaking there? And I thought, okay, God got the message, this is my opportunity to go and make amends to this person. So we get down to this roundup, and she's the evening speaker, and she finishes, and and she's standing way on the other side of the hall. And I'm mustering up all this courage and I'm praying, okay, God, guide me, grant me the courage, you know, the strength to make this a man. And, and I'm sure as I'm walking across the floor, I'm vibrating the whole way and I get up to her and I say, hi. And she looks at me and she said, hi. Do I know you? Okay well, except when to do so would injure them or others. So there's no sense me dragging up all that stuff from the past or that incident from the past. So I left it alone. I just said I really enjoyed what she had to say and and that was it. And I went back and I shared this with my sponsor and that, pray for that ability to forgive yourself, came back again. And step 10 Every day is an opportunity to grow through accepting the fact that I still have moments of selfishness, resentment, fear, and dishonesty. The sponsor that I have today, her and I have a great relationship, and she knows me so well. Early, uh, must have been about, hmm, I would say, eight years ago, nine years ago, I had another huge resentment, and I would talk to her about this resentment, and she would say, pray about it, and I would talk to her about it, and she'd say, pray about it. And, I mean, this person that I resented, I couldn't even, you know, I just wanted to have the world be rid of this person, you know, and I couldn't even walk by if I saw a picture of this person without sticking out my tongue you know like how mature is that anyway my sponsors pointed out to me that if I didn't pray for this person and for God to remove this resentment what I was doing was I was becoming spiritually sick and the next step was the bottle would come back into play okay got the message I was going to pray for this person, I was going to pray hard. I mean, those first few prayers are, yeah, I know, i got to do this, you know. But today, I have a great relationship with that person. So what it says to me is, you know, this program and the powerfulness of prayer really works. Step 11, seeking that conscious contact with God on a daily basis. I really need to do that first thing in the morning. I don't know who's out there to get me during the day. I'm in a job where I work with people all the time. And I need to be able to be ready, you know, to be of sound mind, you know, to 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 deal with that. And for the most part, when I take that time to pray and meditate, it works. Those days where I just hurry into the day. I've had to stop, go into the bathroom at work and say, okay, God, I know it's my attitude here now. Please help me with it. I come out and things have changed. Nothing around me's changed, but my attitude has changed. And step 12 for me, that very first sponsor that I had in Alcoholics Anonymous, spoke at a roundup one time and he said when I go home at the end of the day and I look at myself in the mirror I have to ask myself what have I done for Alcoholics Anonymous today? And you know that's step 12 in a nutshell. What have I done for AA today? Have I treated those I live with with respect, understanding, love, tolerance, patience, People I work with, people in my family, people I see on the street, people I walk in, t- in a lineup in a grocery store or driving down the street. What have I done for AA? You know, there's so much more to that 12-step work than, than just being on the other end of that phone when someone calls and needs that, that hand reaching out. I can do it all day long, every day. And I have to share a story too. When I first came into Alcoholics Anonymous and and I would see, you know, newcomers coming up to these long timers and asking them to be a sponsor and I'm thinking, when is that going to happen for me? You know, like I've got all this wisdom and experience, I can share this with some sick newcomer. And... It didn't happen for quite some time. I moved from Malford to to PA and and um the group that I first started going to there was there was um more men than there was women. Anyway, when I moved to PA, the job that I moved there for, um, it was cutbacks from the government, so I was laid off for a while. And there was three other women in that group at that time and they were all newcomers, and they asked me, all of them, to be their sponsor, and I thought I have arrived, you know, and I would pick these gals up and I would take them to meetings and I would take them out for coffee and I would take them to meetings and take them out for coffee and I was getting resentful, I was getting angry and I was getting, this is good for you, and so I went and talked to our infamous long-timer NPA, in and I said, You know, I know you've sponsored a whole lot of people over the years, what am I not doing right? And he said, you got to ask yourself two questions. Why are you doing it? What are your motives? And what are you letting them do for themselves? Ooh, that's stuck. You know, I went home and I thought, yeah, I know what my motives are. I want the rest of the A world to say, isn't she wonderful, look at all those sponsies she's got. And what was I letting them do for themselves? Absolutely nothing, because I was carrying the mess. I wasn't carrying the message. I was trying to keep them sober when they didn't want to be sober. So when I let go of that whole idea and allowed them to do some things for themselves, it wasn't very long before they went back drinking not that I'm responsible for them going back drinking at all that was their choice and their path that they had to take but I'll tell you I learned a very valuable lesson through all of that as I said in the beginning my first first year sobriety my children chose to go back and live with their father for a short period of time that marriage ended in divorce the job I was at at that time I was asked to leave and my son was seriously injured in a three-wheeler accident he was going across the field to the neighbor's place and the three-wheeler hit a hole and he flipped the bike and the handlebars split his liver when he came into the hospital when they brought him into the hospital that afternoon and I went in to look at him I couldn't understand why this 14-year-old was crying and in pain and saying, "Mommy, it hurts. Mommy, it hurts," and there wasn't a mark on his body. Anyway, the the surgeon, the doctor, came in and said, "The surgeon's going to have a look at him because they had found blood and in, um, in his urine, and there was internal bleeding." So the surgeon walked in, and this fella didn't look like he was 10 days out of out of medical school. But that fellow, that doctor, had just returned that day from Mandan, North Dakota to learn more about our disease of alcoholism. Had he not come home that day and been there for my son, my son would not have survived the two-hour trip into the city for them to treat him there. They had lost him twice on the operating table. They pumped 12 pints of blood into him, but he survived. And to me, what that said was the powerfulness of God, because the only thing I could think of doing was saying that serenity prayer over and over and over. And the fellowship, they were there for me. AA did not let me down. There was phone calls, people came to the house while we waited, when he was in surgery, They were there for me, and I won't ever forget that. He survived, and he's doing very well today. After that surgery, and after everything kind of settled down after that, and he grew up, and he was 19 years of age, and he was still living at home with me and my daughter. I had gone away at Christmas time one year, and he wasn't able to go because he was working, so. His sister and I went to Montreal for Christmas. Come home and, uh well, you leave a house with a 19-year-old who likes to party, you kind of know what happens when you're gone. And I had to kick him out. That was the toughest thing that I had to do as a mother, was I kicked him out of the house. I said, it's time you were on your own. It took him about three to four months, but he finally came around. He came back over to the house one afternoon. And He said to me, he was living with two other guys in this house, and he said, You know, Mom, I don't get it, he said. I spent the whole day cleaning house, he said, and I put this mop bucket in the sink. He said, And what do they do? They pile the dishes all around it. They can't even empty it. And he said, Do you know how expensive groceries are? Isn't life a wonderful teacher? I just smiled at him and just said, Yes, it's nice to see you doing well. Anyway, today he's married, he got married four years ago, and they have blessed me with a granddaughter and a grandson. And I was there when my granddaughter was born, I was right in the room with her when she was born. And I'll tell you, had it not been for Alcoholics Anonymous, I wouldn't have had that experience. I wouldn't have been there. And to me, it's just the most joyous event to take part in. And when my grandson was born, I wasn't able to be out there because they live in in Stony Plain, Alberta. But I was the first person for my son to call and to let me know that this baby had been born. And I thought, they didn't call their dad because he's still out there drinking. Didn't call him, didn't know where he is, but they called me. And you know, that to me is just the most powerful message that Alcoholics Anonymous can be can give to me is to be there for my children and that they, they appreciate me being an Alcoholics Anonymous. My daughter, it'll be eight years ago this fall, got a phone call. She was in a car accident. And this is another powerful lesson a powerful message about God being there when I can't be. She got into the back seat of a car with two guys, and the, the, the driver had been drinking, he was drunk. And this, this girl never ever wore her seatbelt. But she got in the back seat of that car and she said, Mom, something said to me, put your seatbelt on. So she did. That fellow hit a power pole doing 80 miles an hour. Had she not had that seatbelt on, I would have a different story to tell. She wound up in the hospital for two months. Two surgeries, three surgeries later, she finally came home. But she um, shattered a disc in her back, and she had internal injuries from the seatbelt. But the day that she called me, I had to go back to work. I was with her for the most part. But the day that she called me, I was speaking that night at an Ellen Gratitude night. She said, "Mom, I was up walking today," and I thought, "Wow." God does so work in my life and hers. And today she lives in Innisfail, Alberta, and her and I are best friends. You know, when we talk on the phone together, we can talk for an hour, two hours, and we talk about everything and anything. She had called me before she moved to Alberta one time, and she had said to me, Mom, I am so glad you're sober, you know, because I'm there for her. And that speaks volumes to me. When I first sobered up, to when I left that first marriage, I left everything behind except the most important things, that being my children and my life. But I also left a vehicle. For the first six years of my sobriety, I didn't have a vehicle, but I relied totally on the members of Alcoholics Anonymous to get me to places, take me places, and I mean I went everywhere. But I said one of these selfish prayers that I said to God one night, I said, you know God, I think I need a car, could you please send me a car, I mean, I know I can rely on people to help me out, but would you please send me a car? Well, he sent me a car, but he sent the driver too, and the owner with the same person who's my husband today. Now, you need to know when I first met Jim, he was one of those guys, he was, I saw him at a service um, function in Red Deer. It was a forum, I think, and he was in one of these suits, you know, looking like Mr. Important, you know. And I had a, I had a fear of guys in suits or uniforms or something like that, you know, and I thought, oh boy, he's way out of my league. Anyway, it's interesting how he became less intimidating when I got him down to his shorts. we had we've had a very interesting relationship, Jim and I. he's been very supportive of my service work in Alcoholics Anonymous and encouraged me in any way, shape or form and when we were first dating, we had I made decisions about our relationship based on fear, and I would kick him out of my life and I would take him back and I would kick him out and I would take him back and so when we got married, I would ever forget. The day of our wedding, the pastor, who performed the ceremony, said, There's going to come a time in your relationship when things are going to get real tough. He said, When they get tough, are you going to run, or are you going to stay and face it? Well, a couple of years ago, I ran. We separated for a while, and I thought that was the answer to my problems, you know, this isn't actually going to work out, and you know, I was pointing the finger at him, but you know what they say, when you point your finger, there's always three pointing back. While we were separated, though, it wasn't all a bad thing, because it allowed me the time again to take a look at me, to spend the time that I needed, in looking at those things that I needed to deal with one more time, so that I could then make the decision to be a responsible partner in that relationship. So we're now back living under the same roof. We moved. I moved back in in March of, of last year. And we've had our moments. We've had our tough times. But you know what? I'm there. And that's the most important thing. My sponsor says, love is not a feeling. Love does not give you that tickle in the tummy stuff. Love is commitment. And I've had to learn that. And so I'm committed to that relationship, just like I am to Alcoholics Anonymous. I've been very, very involved in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I've been very, very fortunate for all the things that have happened to me as a result of being in this program. And I'm especially grateful to those two members long, long ago who did not give up on me. They just hung in there for me. I just want to mention one more thing about my family. My dad. My mom and dad. You know, I wanted so bad to get his approval for some, you know, for something in life, just for him to say how proud he was of me when I was drinking, but that didn't happen. The first year I was delegate, on the Thursday night, the first day we were there, when Jim and I and another couple went out, we went exploring New York and looked at things and I phoned my mom and dad that night from that hotel and I said, I'm calling you from Manhattan, New York. And I told them all the things that we had done and where we'd been. And at the end of the conversation, my dad says, boy, I'm sure proud of you. And I was stunned. I tried to hear those words the whole time I was drinking and all I had to do was sober up. You know, to hear that. They don't understand why I'm in Alcoholics Anonymous. They don't ask many questions because then that might have to open up the door for them. But that's okay. The rest of my family, I mean, I don't care anymore. It's not that I shouldn't say I don't care. It's not important that they do understand. But one of the, another thing that Alcoholics Anonymous gave me was the opportunity to learn how to play golf. I had said to my... I was working for a gal back then, and I said to her, you know, one of my goals in life is I want to learn to to play golf so I can have a game of golf with my dad before something happens to him. You see, my dad was an avid golfer. The whole time I was growing up, we never saw him on Father's Day. He was always in a golf tournament. And I couldn't understand, you know... When I was drinking, it's that contempt prior to investigation. What's the big deal about this golf thing? So one day, my manager says to me, so what are you doing on Sunday? I said, nothing. She said, good, we're going golfing. Oh, yeah, you know how you put out that brave front that, yeah, I can do anything, you know? And then when she suggested it, I thought, oh, my God, what did I get myself into? But from the first time I swung at that ball, I was hooked. So I went home that afternoon, and I phoned my dad, and I said, guess what I did today? And he said, what? I said, I just got off the golf course. He said, good, for sure we're going to have a game one day. And you know, we had several games, but as I said, you know, I wanted to do that before he couldn't. Last Friday they moved him into a home, so he's not able to go golfing ever again. So don't miss those opportunities. If you want to do something to to um, enhance your relationship with someone, please do it because you may not get a second chance. So why do I keep coming to Alcoholics Anonymous? Somewhere out there, either one short block from this facility, or down the street from where I live, There is a woman who is hurting inside. Fear has taken over, and she wonders if she will ever rejoin the human race. Responsibilities of children, home, job and husband are weighing her down, and she thinks they would be better off without her, and she would be better off without them. Her only escape? The bottle. She now has lost all ability to say no. And the next morning she's unable to face herself in the mirror, hating herself all over again. And the cycle continues until one day, in God's timing, someone will bring her a message of hope. And I pray that when she reaches out her hand for help, that mine or another member of AA will be there for her to share our experience, strength and hope. The only way that will happen is if you and I continue to be at meetings to keep the doors open for her to walk through. I know because it happened that way for me. God bless.